Hey everyone, Steve here, and I just want to give a quick shout out to Todd Cincy, G-Man Trader, and Bob at Labrador Leadership for giving us reviews on iTunes. iTunes does their rankings based on an algorithm of downloads and reviews, so each review we get helps bump us up those podcast charts. If you like what you've heard, and you've got a moment, please go to iTunes and leave us an honest review. We would appreciate it more than you know. We've got a link embedded in the summary of this MP3 to make it even easier to do so, and if you do you'll probably get a shout out on a future episode. Thanks. What makes a life extraordinary aren't the special chances and opportunities you get, but what you do with them. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and that was today's guest, blogger and writer Jeff Goins. Now, Jeff has written a book called The Art of Work, A Proven Path to Discovering what you were meant to do. Um, we're going to talk today about how he moved from working seven years at a nonprofit to becoming a successful writer and blogger that has fans like Michael Hyatt, Seth Godin, and John Acuff. I wasn't able to be part of this interview, but in reviewing it, one of my biggest takeaways was how you can make a difference and influence people where you are right now, whether you've got a large bank account or if you're barely making it paycheck to paycheck. If you feel you're destined for bigger things, pay attention to this one. Here now is how my co-host John Ramstead started this interview on this edition of Eternal Leadership. Today on the Eternal Leadership Podcast, we have Jeff Goins on. And if you're not familiar with Jeff, really, Jeff, and I, and I can't wait to hear you know part of your whole story. But you know, two years ago, uh, I believe you really started from scratch, just having this calling on your heart just to make an impact with your life and in, in other people's lives. And that's led to this just tremendous success. Uh, one of the most popular bloggers out there. You have a best-selling book. You're speaking. And what I love about all your material is I listen to you, and we'll be talking about some of your podcasts. And if you guys aren't listening to Jeff's podcast, you need to definitely put that on your list. But everything is just so practical uh, it's just action-oriented. It's just something you can just take and make that change today in your life that just moves you forward in, in a real way. So, you know, Jeff, welcome to uh, the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, John. Um, big fan, and uh, thanks for saying all those nice things. I'm glad to be here. Well, you know, it's easy to say nice things about nice people. <laughs> Oh, thanks. <laughs> well, hey, you know, let's start because, you know, some people, they might not be familiar with you, your background, what you're doing. So why, why don't you just take some time and just kind of share a little bit about your story, your journey, and what's led you to this point today? Sure. Well, so, um, you know, y you made it sound like a short journey. And when I tell the story, sometimes it, it sounds that way. You know, two years ago, I quit my job to become a full-time blogger and speaker and author and, um, you know, several years ago, I didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> and uh, I still sort of get surprised that it's a legitimate career path and still talk to a lot of people that don't understand what I do. And that's okay because I don't always understand it either. But really, this all began almost a decade ago, probably nine years ago now, where I, um, you know, graduated college. I'd finished up 
uh, a year of traveling the country playing with a band and I had uh, you know just before that finished a Spanish degree so learned Spanish travel the country playing music uh, and then you know went to go work for a nonprofit so a lot of you know uh, disconnected pieces and I, I, I this nonprofit was a Christian ministry mission organization and I worked there for seven years and started as a writer and eventually became the marketing director. Uh, and learned a lot about what it takes to spread ideas and stories. Um, never really anticipated getting into marketing at all, but that uh, ended up becoming a great education for what I do now. And through that process, I realized, uh, you know, I like spreading ideas and telling stories and telling other people's stories. Um, but what I really want to do is I want to um, I want to write and I want to tell my story. I want to connect. Uh, you know my ideas and stories with with other people, and so around that time, I I realized I really need to start a blog, and I didn't have any big notions of quitting my job or doing anything grandiose. Um, I really just wanted to kind of get my words out there and, and see what happened, and uh, you know as it turns out, a lot ended up happening. You know when you started writing the blog, Jeff, what what do you think contributed for what you were writing to really connect with the people that were were reading it? Yeah, so that's a great question because when I started, uh, I started uh, trying to copy everybody else's voice. So there was a guy that I was following, uh, Michael Hyatt. Some of your listeners might be familiar with his content. Great stuff on leadership, uh, influence, uh, even social media. And so you know, I kind of in the beginning probably tried to be like him. And then you know, I read uh, another favorite blogger is Seth Godin. There mm-hmm. were times when I was trying to sound you know uh, pithy and concise and and you know really witty like 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 he does stuff. And it did not connect with people. And so I tried a bunch of different things. And then ultimately what I started writing about, a lot of what I was writing about was this journey that I was going through uh, in becoming a writer. And I started sharing the things that I was learning. As I had been doing as a marketing director for years, I would learn things about what we were doing as an organization. I would bring it to my team and I would basically educate them. And then they would go you know, carry out uh, whatever new idea uh, you know, I'd, I'd brought to the table. And I, you know, I love realized I loved teaching and I loved unpacking new ideas that I, you know, had had found through reading books or blogs or whatever. I love absorbing information. And so when I started doing that on my blog, when I started sharing what I was learning, uh, everything began to change. But I mean, it took months for me to try lots of different things before I finally found something that that stuck. And the thing that stuck was really talking about writing, blogging, all this stuff that I was basically learning about as I was doing it. And for whatever reason, that was really attractive to people. And now I guess I kind of get it. I mean, most people feel like they've got a book in them, even if they don't think of themselves as a writer with a capital W. Uh, you know, everybody has a story to tell, some idea to share, and writing is still a great way to get that out. And so I guess I didn't realize at the beginning how many people I was going to reach, you know, just talking about something like writing. Well, you know, it sounds like when you really connected really to that authentic self of, you know, who you are. You know, and I, you know, I love how you start uh, when you start talking about your book. You know, stop dreaming, discover your calling, and do it. And it sounds like when you actually discovered why you were meant to do this and started talking, you know, from the heart, all of a sudden it's you coming out, not some version of you. And then, and then people really connect to that. And I, I think that's probably a universal concept. Yeah, I think so too. I, I think one of the um, the biggest dangers in society today, especially in America, where there's so many 
options and opportunities. We get uh, overwhelmed. We get paralyzed with all of the opportunities. We don't know what the right thing to do is. And as a result, many of us just kind of stay stuck in dreamland thinking about what a better life might look like. And I think one of the greatest dangers is not that you'll fail, but that you'll succeed at the wrong thing. And um, what that looked like for me uh, was going through my life, succeeding at, you know, being a marketing director, becoming really successful in the job that I had, and then, you know, going through decades of doing that work because I knew I, I was doing it well and that I had, you know, some job security there. And then, you know, getting to 40, 50, 60 years old and then looking back and going, oh, no, I was successful but I missed the thing that I was really supposed to do. And as you mentioned, John, I think what that what it takes to to you know not miss that calling to to not succeed at the wrong thing is to really get clear about who you are. I think that activity follows identity. That before you can go do something, you need to become someone. You need to become the person that you're meant to be. And uh, there's an old Trappist monk, uh, an author, a guy named Thomas Merton, who writes about uh, this in, in several of his books. He talks about the the false self and then the true self. He says most people live uh, you know, behind the, the false self, which he calls a shadow. And the problem with that shadow self is that if you do those things long enough. And he says, you know, the shadow self, the false self is the thing that other people like about you, but mm-hmm. isn't completely true. You know, it's, it's, it's you living up to other people's expectations, what your parents think, what your, I don't know, church community thinks sometimes, uh, what your coworkers, what your boss thinks. And you're living this facade uh, because you know it's what other people expect of you. And inside you go, this isn't really me. And the problem is people congratulate you, give you high fives, give you raises, whatever. And you do that long enough. And what Merton says is that if you live kind of behind the shadow, if you live in the shadows long enough, you begin to believe that it's the real thing. And I was really scared of that. And and at 27 years old, um, I just realized something's missing. I've got an itch and I haven't figured out a way to scratch it yet. So I started scratching it. I started going to conferences. I started reading books. I started talking to friends. I started trying to figure out what was missing in my life. And uh, pretty soon what I realized is that what was missing was that um, I was a writer and I wasn't spending much of my time writing. And so I had to figure out a way to not take some giant leap, but build a bridge, a gradual transition to close the gap between uh, where I was and where I wanted to be. But I didn't even know how to begin that process uh, or that there was a process until I got pretty clear about who I was. And, and once I figured out who I was, then that activity fall. Then I figured out what I was meant to do. And I think a lot of times we just flip those. We, we do first and then we think about who we are second. And you could do that for a lifetime. And then, like I said, and you know, come to the end of your life and realize, oh my gosh, um, this isn't who I was. I didn't actually do the thing that I was supposed to do because I never really knew who I was. Well, you know, let me ask you a question, because this actually comes from uh, a listener of ours, and I've gotten a number of these questions coming in just in the last couple of weeks, and I was really excited about having this interview with, with you today, because we've brought on uh, a number of our guests that we've interviewed have had some just some significant success in their life, and they've been able to take those, you know, time and financial resources to, you know, do things, launch things. And the theme that people have, have been asking me about recently uh, and here's just a quote from one of them. He says, can you speak to those of us who's not been as financially successful? This comes from a guy who's been, he's 50 years old. He's had a successful contracting business, but there's, you know, there's not a lot of the excess that you think about. Uh, and he has this deep desire 
to create a platform, to make a difference, to look for it. You know, he's looking for this new direction in his life. Uh, but what you're talking about, I think he's really trying to find his calling. And how do you just, as a regular person, because uh, you describe yourself as, you know, se- seven years of a failed writer and entrepreneur. So it's probably you had <laughs> seven years of hard work but until you became an overnight success, right? Um, you know and during that period of time i'm sure there's times you thought to yourself you know look at all these other people they got it so together what is wrong with this picture what am i missing um so uh, as we go through this and talk about this book it's called the art of work i encourage everybody to read this and love to talk about why you wrote it and also why did you you started out the book with this very challenging story to to read a bit about this young boy garrett and I'd love for you to maybe start there and why that was kind of the, the framing of the book. Sure. Well, there's lots to unpack there, so let me know if I miss some of it. Sure, um, yeah. Sorry to stack yeah, so many questions on you, but... <laughs> no, they're great questions. <laughs> I, I've been thinking about these questions for years, and um, uh, I had a friend, an older friend, once tell me something that I think was a compliment. Uh, they called me an old soul. And uh, what I think that means is... Um, I'm I'm grumpier than a lot of my peers and and you know and I think about things that I guess uh, you know people don't always think about at least maybe not at this stage of their life uh, but I've always thought about things like legacy and uh, what matters the most right now um, what are the things that I'm going to be what what are the things that I'm doing today that are going to matter in eternity? In the movie Gladiator, there he gives this speech where he mm. says, um, "What you do today will echo in the halls of eternity, you know, forever." I love that. And line. like today, today is a significant day, and um, part of me wants every day to be that day, you know, where what I'm doing today will echo in the halls of eternity. Not that it's, you know, a big deal all the time. I think there are days when I take off of work early and go surprise my wife and son and we go to the zoo. And that's a day that will echo in the hall of eternity. But it's just that question of what matters right now? Am I, am I spending my time doing what matters right now? Or I'm, am I lying to myself? Am I saying, uh, well, I've got to get through this so that someday, I can do what I really want to do. I can be who God really made me to be. I can I can be as generous as I want to be. So to go back and answer that first question from the listener, uh, and then we'll, we can I guess talk about Garrett. Um, uh, I I think so, in some ways I, I understand the heart of the question, but um, uh, I would I, I have two answers to that. One mm-hmm. is it might be putting the cart before the horse to say. What do you do if you want to give, you want to be generous, you want to impact other people, but you haven't been as financially successful as you know someone else? Um, I worked for a nonprofit for seven years, and we constantly were amazed at the generosity, unexpected generosity of people who were not people of well means, you know, or, who, who weren't rich, you know, who weren't affluent people, and yet they gave sacrificially of of what they had. By no means would I, um, you know, advocate that somebody you know, put put their family or themselves into financial jeopardy out of some sense of guilt or obligation to be, you know, pious. Um, that said, in Scripture, you know, this we have this great example of the widow's mites, and she gives mm-hmm. everything that she has, and Jesus says she gave more than than anybody else who's giving out of their their uh, affluence. And uh, what I learned from that story, and what I've learned from the generosity of people, I am trying to be like and failing at it sometimes, but, but, but trying to align my, my life around the right principles. What I learned from some of the most generous people I know is uh, that generosity does not follow success. In many ways, 
success follows generosity. That that the most generous people I know uh, were generous when they had very little, and uh, God gave them more and more, entrusted them with more, and they've been even more faithful with the more that they get. And, and the opposite is also true. If you cannot be faithful with a little, um, you will not be faithful with with a lot. And I am learning that with difficulty and and tripping all along the way. And uh, I'm not saying that if you know you haven't been financially successful, that that means you're not blessed, because I think that's craziness. Um, and I'm not saying that everybody who's who's rich, you know, got there because they were generous. Uh, but for the type of person that listen that is listening to this, thinking about that, you know, my challenge to myself uh, and to you know the person listening to this would be. Don't think that generosity follows success. It happens the other way around. Um, and, and, and that is, looks different for everybody. The second thing I would say to that is um, you know, financial, you know, financial success and giving of your money or your resources is not the only way to necessarily um, make an impact. One of my favorite quotes, and I end this really with the book, the last chapter of the book is about legacy. And then we'll go back to the beginning, which you asked about Garrett. Um, is um, it, it, there's this quote by Jackie Robinson, and he says, "A life isn't significant except for its impact on other lives." And um, I, I think when it comes to how how can I be of use right now, it, that's the answer. Is um, success is really a matter of how am I impacting other people? How am I taking the gifts and skills and talents that I have and investing into uh, other people to help them grow, uh, to help them be more successful? I think that's the greatest uh, measure of success. And those are the kinds of things that, uh, you know, those are the kinds of acts of generosity that really do uh, multiply themselves. If you look at the life of Jesus, he wasn't some rich guy who gave everything he had, you know, to uh, the, the poor necessarily. I mean, he lived with the poor. He was poor. He had people supporting him. Um, he was generous when people asked, but he wasn't, you know, some rich, successful guy who, you know, worked for 50 years and, and then spent the rest of his life as a philanthropist. But he impacted every single life that he touched, right? Exactly. I mean, and that's what we can do secret. and start right now, yeah. wherever we're sitting in our whole life. Yeah. What I, I mean, one of my favorite biblical quotes is you will do greater things than, than me. And that is the, is the mark of a great leader. I'm going to influence the lives around me. And these people are going to do something greater than I did. It's going to have a multiplying effect. And that's, that's what I think that was the genius of Jesus's uh, leadership and generosity is he took um, his time and he invested into others and then they multiplied his work and obviously changed the world. Yeah, an incredible movement. Now let, let's circle back. I'd love to hear just your your because you, the whole conversation about Garrett really framed up. I thought where where you went with the whole rest of the book. For me, yeah. even with everything I went through with my accident and just some incredible learning moments and and just reflection that happened through that. This even that brought so much of that home for me, and I, I'd like you to share that. Sure. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, me too. When I was, I had all these stories, hundreds of people that I had interviewed who all told me that they found their calling. Um, incidentally, uh, you know, a good number of these people were not Christians. And it's interesting to see this talk of calling and vocation and purpose uh, enter the, the you know, mainstream culture. This is something that everybody is longing for. And it was one of the reasons why I wrote the book to, you know, was to address a larger audience and say, this is something that we all 
uh, are, are looking for. And certainly, you know, as a believer, knowing the voice that's calling you, uh, being familiar with it is, um, you know, more important, you know, is, is, is better than not knowing it. But I think that, but I think God is calling, you know, all of us to a, a life of selflessness and sacrifice and significance. Anyway, um, what surprised me, frankly, uh, what went so um, contrary to the typical self-help advice that we hear, sadly, even in Christian circles, is that what I found, uh, one of the, the major themes in, in every life, every story, um, every interview that I did of somebody who had found their calling and they were living an extraordinary life doing what they were meant to do, which is not most people, incidentally, um, uh, it, it did not start with a plan. It did not start with some goal where they said, this is what God is telling me to do or this is what I want to do and I'm going to go after it. What, it. what started with usually was some kind of tragedy, some sort of wake-up call. And what I realized is that finding your calling isn't, isn't uh, you know, setting a plan and going after it. Often it's what happens when the way, you know, the way that you've planned your life out has gone horribly wrong. And in the life of Garrett Rush Miller, uh, what happens with him is one day at T-ball practice, uh, this five-year-old boy named Garrett uh, misses the tee, is kind of wobbly. He's just acting a little bit awkward, and his parents worry that something's wrong with him. They take him to the doctor. They order a CT scan. They reveal a golf ball-sized tumor in his brain. They immediately operate, trying to remove that, uh, you know, get that out, out of their son's body as quickly as possible. And then next morning, Garrett wakes up blind, mute, and paralyzed. And he's given at most uh, uh, five years to live. And the Millers begin counting down the days that they have left to spend with their son. And, uh, you know, all kinds of clinical treatments and all kinds of crazy, uh, you know, stuff happens that, that year. And, and, but one day, Eric, the father, is sitting in the hospital praying, and he's, he's feeling sorry for himself and his family, and understandably so, and he's just worried that, you know, this is their, their son's life is over. It's just going to be just keeping him alive. It's just about going to be about survival until he, he dies of cancer. And then he has an epiphany. He realizes the clock is not ticking down on my son's life any more than it is on all of our lives. And something shifts in him that day. Nothing, nothing changes circumstantially, but something shifts for him where he realizes the clock is ticking down on all of our lives. And we need to be living today, every day, as if it's our last. And that uh, changes their the whole family's mindset and what happens on the one year anniversary of Garrett's surgery that debilitated him. Uh, he and his dad, Garrett and Eric, complete a triathlon, and then they do it again the next year, and the next year, and the next year, and they do this for a dozen more years. Yeah, and Garrett's health improves. He gains back some of his eyesight and mobility. He goes and climbs Machu Picchu. Uh, he c- completes in a marathon by himself. Uh, he. Um, becomes an Eagle Scout and starts volunteering his time at Wounded Warriors, a a charity that helps uh, veterans. And I got to speak to this 18-year-old boy who was told that at five years old that he would be dead by 10. And I asked him, I said, do you ever think about what life would have been like if this never would have happened? And he said, no, I never think about that because that doesn't matter. He and his dad both said, this is the hand that we've been dealt and we just have to play it the best that we can. What I learned from Garrett is that what makes a life extraordinary aren't the special chances and opportunities you get, but what you do with them. You know, so as Garrett went through this process and you know, he's just looking at just everything in his life, but you know, he really has an incredible attitude, which, which is just so admirable. Um, but you know, a lot of us, we are seeking for that calling, you know, both secular and in Christian worlds, but 
you know, what does it look like? How, how would you define a calling and how would we recognize it? So a couple of things I think are interesting. Uh, one, uh, according to a, a poll, a recent poll by Gallup, 87% of the world's workers are either uh, disengaged or actively disengaged with their work, meaning they're just punching a clock at best or they're throwing wrenches into the machine. Um, they're not happy with their work. And this has become so commonplace that it's become normal. It's become expected that people just put up with their jobs, which is how we spend the majority of our waking hours is, is at jobs uh, we don't love uh, to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't like, as the saying goes. Um, and that seems wrong. That seems some, like something's broken. The other thing that has surprised me, especially in the faith community, um, is lots of people want to find their purpose and most people feel like they're missing it. I mean, I was at a Bible study not too long ago and we had 20 people in the room and somebody asked, who here has found their calling? Two people raised their hand. Um, it, it seems to me that most of us don't understand the story of our lives. We don't. We don't know what it's really uh, about. Why, why do you think? Time, why do you think such a small percentage feel like they've connected to that? I think, and this is why I wrote the book. Uh, is I think it's because we don't understand what a calling looks like. We don't understand what it looks like in ordinary life, and and we tend to mystify the biblical accounts of calling in a way that actually is unbiblical. And uh, one of the things I talk about in the book a lot is not knowing. Uh, we, we think, uh, you know, typically has been my experience, we think that a calling is, uh, it either just means to be a good Christian, be a good person, and it's just sort of this general thing that everybody's supposed to do and there's nothing special about it, or it's some super special, supernatural thing um, that um, if you don't get a light down from heaven, you, you know, you're not called to do something. Yeah, like and if you don't, get, you don't get that voice speaking in your head or it's not like delivered you on a silver platter. It's like, I haven't found it yet. God hasn't spoke to me. Spoken with it, to me. Right? And, and I think that's such a huge mistake. But a lot of people are stuck right there. Like, God hasn't told me what it is yet. Um, and there's yeah. this big mystery that and, and I think you, you, you pull the curtain back on this. So, yeah, I mean, I think that um, when you look at the biblical accounts of that happening, they don't get it. Like mm-hmm. Samuel is hearing the the prophet Samuel is hearing the audible voice of God. This is like the thing that we all go. If that happened to me, I would know. I would know exactly what to do. If God just spoke to me, I mean, how many times do you hear this? Right? Like God just told me what to do. I would do it. Yeah. How, how many times have we prayed for that? <laughs> Lord, just yeah. come on. Tell me. Help a brother well, out. Here- Here's a biblical example where that happens, and he misses it. Three times it happens, and finally, uh, Eli says, here's what you need to do. You need to lie down in bed. You need to stop coming to me, and, and you need to say, uh, speak, uh, for your, your, speak, Lord, for your servant is, is listening. And what I love about that story, and that, that story, the story of Moses, really any prophetic call, Jonah, uh, even Jesus, um, when God is calling on his people to act, our first response is, what? I'm sorry I didn't hear that. Or uh, I'm not good at speaking or let this cup pass from me. Um, you know, that that's our humanity coming out saying, uh, I don't know about this. And uh, all, all I think that illustrates is that finding your calling is messy. It is a process where you are flying blind. You don't begin with clarity. Clarity comes with action. Uh, God is always calling you into the mystery and 
it's always up to you to take that first step. And what I learned from Garrett and all of these stories in the book is that what that looks like practically is it means life will not happen according to your plan. And it doesn't mean that a terrible tragedy has to awaken you to your purpose. I mean, I don't wish tragedy on anybody. It means that things in our life are always happening that go against the plan, that go against our expectations. What I would challenge you to do is you should be listening to God. You should be listening to your life in those moments and saying, what's going on here? Uh, It's not just a question of am I being punished or am I being tested or any of that, but how can I respond to this? I can't control what happens to me, but I can can control how I respond to um, my circumstances. And that's what I learned from Garrett is more important than having a perfect plan is developing a faithful mindset. And really that came from his dad, from Eric. Um, You know, we can't control what happens to us. All we can do is play the hand that we've been dealt and we can, we can do that the best that we can and stop worrying about, you know, what if, or what could have been. You know, you talked about Jeff, this is interesting. Um, You know, action, you know, action, in clarity, right? You have to start moving and be in action before you have clarity. And that seems, right. I think, very counterintuitive to a lot of people that just heard you say that. Can you, can you expand on that a bit? So uh, a gentleman once went to Mother Teresa and uh, asked her uh, for, for prayer for clarity. Mm-hmm. This gentleman went to Mother Teresa and said, uh, please pray for me for clarity. She says, no, I won't do that. <laughs> he goes, what are you talking about? You're Mother Teresa. Uh, you know, give me clarity. Give me some of that good stuff that you have. And she says, she says, no, I, I, don't, I don't have clarity. And he goes, what are you talking about? You're Mother Teresa. If you don't have clarity, what does that mean for the rest of us? And she just says, no, I, I've never had clarity. I've only ever had trust. And so I will pray that you have trust. I think that we... We think that, uh, you know, the, the biblical heroes or the heroes of the faith uh, or extraordinary people um, aren't like us, that they don't have doubts, that they don't have fears, that, that they get a clear radio satellite signal to God and they hear things the way that, uh, in a way that, that, that we're missing out on. And maybe that's true for some special people. I keep digging into stories of extraordinary lives and I found out, find out more often than not the story is messy. I mean, if Mother Teresa, <laughs> who clearly left an impact on the world and um, you know did God's God's work, I mean, hopefully we can all agree on on that that she did something. She tapped into something that you know most of us are afraid to tap into or feel like unqual- we're unqualified to tap into. And she's going, yeah, I I I don't know. Uh, I was just taking steps of faith along the way, and I was trusting. And and that mystery, that lack of resolution is hard for those of us who like things planned out. But if, if that's true, if that's you know, universally true or, or often true, you know, more than, than not, um, then what does that mean for us today? I think it means that we stop having to wait around for some special circumstance to arrive, for some dream to come true or a fairy godmother to come and sprinkle us with you know, her special dust or something. And it means that we have a responsibility to act today. I am not a humanist. I do not think that it's all on us that the world revolves around uh, humanity. But I think that when we take those steps of faith, um, God shows up. And, and what we realize is he was there all along. But uh, my very you know primitive theology is that God loves to partner with his people. And he's not going to push you uh, off the cliff. But he's going to walk with you. And so I do think things become clear as you go. You go. I do think that you discover things along the way. But that clarity comes with action. You have to act, and then things start to become more clear as you go. 
I mean, you also said that that is preceded by listening to life. What does listening to life look like? So Parker Palmer, uh, an author, an activist, he wrote a great book. Uh, he's a, a Quaker, I think. Uh, he wrote a great book called Let Your Life Speak several years ago. In that book, he says, before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, I need to listen to my life telling me who I am. From a Christian perspective, what that means is uh, God is the author of my story. And when I look back at my life, which often, you know, my memories, that my accomplishments, my experiences, the things that I've done, they feel disjointed. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned I traveled with a band. I studied Spanish. I joined a nonprofit. I, I was a tele, tele salesman for a while. Did a bunch of different things that didn't make any sense as they were happening. And yet now at 32 years old, I look back on, on those things and I go, Wow, this, you know, they're dominoes. This thing happened so that this thing could happen so that this thing could happen. Uh, and at, you know, when I was 27, 28 and I was having that sort of career crisis, I, I started listening to my life, which was, I meant, I, I, it was an active thing. It wasn't me sitting like in an armchair, sort of, you know, having some meditation or something. It was, I went to conferences, I talked to friends. I, I was really trying to put myself in the perspective of if my life were a movie and I were watching it, what would this thing be about? What would I be anticipating would happen next to the character? And as I started listening to my life, I go, wait a second. These experiences aren't so disjointed as they feel. Um, you know, because I'm getting a little bit of perspective and I'm remembering, man, at, at uh, six years old, I, I would go on car uh, road trips with my mom in the car and she would read the dictionary to me on, on family vacations. That's not normal. That's not something that every six-year-old does. But it was normal to me, right? And That's why you're such a good old, writer today. <laughs> It was one of those things where I go, that's interesting. I didn't even think of myself as, as a writer, and I never considered writing you know, a, a career uh, for me. And then at 12 years old, I won the school spelling bee. The winning word was acquiescence. Um, and I've never struggled in English. And in college, I, I avoided being an English major because I thought that was like career suicide. And then I made the very you know smart, practical decision to become a, a religion major and then get a double major in Spanish. <laughs> and, and Which led to you being in a band. In college, what would I do at midnight or one o'clock in the morning, the, the night before a final, mm-hmm. uh, when I was trying to avoid studying, I would go to the computer lab and I would write because that was stress relief for me. It was an escape. When I started listening to my life, when I started paying attention to the different pieces and understanding it as a story, I realized, man, if there's an author of this story and it's not me, it's very clear to me that this character uh, is, is moving in the direction of becoming a writer. When you don't listen to your life, you run the risk of succeeding at the wrong things. And again, it's not necessarily just some contemplative thing. It's really a practical matter of asking your friends, finding out, you know, what do people see in you? And then what are the things that you've done that you've liked and you haven't liked and you've been good at and you haven't been good at? I don't think that your past dictates your future, but I do think that it should inform it. Well, you know, when I'm working with clients and we're, and we're trying to get this perspective, and I, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought this out, one of the things, you know, a couple of things that have been really helpful is, you know, you ha- just have man- people imagine their life as a play and they're in on the stage and they're involved in, in all the acting. But what if they could remove themselves and, and just sit up in the balcony with a journal and observe the play and just write down what they notice, what they see? And then the next step is, what if you asked a friend to come join you in the balcony and ask them what they were watching? And now you start getting some deep insights into these things that you're talking about is listening and noticing things, not from just being involved in all the crazy spaghetti that our lives are, but a very different perspective that leads us into some of this awareness and knowledge. Yeah. 
I love that. Uh, I'm going to steal that. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> analogy. Yeah, because first it begins with you kind of doing a self-assessment. But then there are certain things about ourselves that we just don't recognize and we need external uh, affirmation, confirmation. One of the, those things for me was uh, my wife for years saying, you're a writer, you're a writer. When are you going to write that book? And then it all kind of came to a head when I started asking lots of friends and other people. Uh, and one of my friends said, uh, you know, he asked me what my dream was. And I said, I, I guess I'd like to be a writer, uh, but I don't know. That'll probably never happen. And he said, Jeff, you are a writer. You just need to write. And that's when that, that sort of clicked for me, that idea of activity following identity, that I really had to figure out who I was. And I went and told my wife, and I go, I'm supposed to be a writer. And she's like, are you kidding me? I've been telling you this for years. And sometimes it, it takes a while for us to actually uh, pay attention to what the voices you know, around us are, are already saying and confirming, and we actually have to believe it. Well, see, there's a really important point that you, that you highlighted right there, is that what is that first gut reaction when you ask that question? And I'll do this with my son sometimes. They'll say, I'll ask them a question, something deep or meaningful as I'm trying to have a conversation. And their first answer is, oh, nothing. Or, you know, uh, I don't have an opinion on that. And I'll ask them, you know, right before you said nothing or no opinion, what was the first thought that just flashed in your head? There's always something there to grab onto. And you know what? Usually that gut feeling, that that internal piece is, I mean, it's going to be really close to the mark. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. And um, uh, one of the things that I hear people ask a lot about when we talk about calling, purpose, that sort of thing, is there's this fear that if you commit to something it'll, and, it, and it ends up being the wrong thing or if it changes over time or if it's more than one thing, there's all this fear of getting it wrong. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, we're real hesitant to say, here's what I want. Here's what my dream is. Here's what I what I think I'm called to do because once I name that, if I fail at it, that that's that's bad, right? And um, I what I have started to learn is what's worse, trying and failing or not trying at all. Uh, one of the people who, whom I talk about in the book, Jody Noland, who found her calling at 58 years old. Uh, she finally submitted to the work that she felt God was calling her to do, and and she said the reason she started acting was she stopped being afraid of failing and started fearing not trying. And I think there's this idea that brave people, um, you know, you know, aren't afraid like the rest of us. And the reality is they just learn how to do it afraid. And in Jody's case, a greater fear pushed out the lesser fear. She was afraid of what happens if I don't try. And, and I think that's the thing you should really be afraid of. Well, you know, in Jody's case, your case, and I'm sure this has come up in a lot of the people you interviewed, you know, you know what happens, you know, when the life that you're living right now is not the one that you expected to live. You know, how do you make that pivot? If you know, if you've gone through this process and you have some of this awareness and now you know I I need to change the trajectory. One of the things that was a little surprising for me was um, how much all these stories were full of failure. Mm. And in, I mean, you mentioned my story earlier, John, you know, it was, it was seven years of utter failure. Uh, and then nine years of kind of, or I'm sorry, two years of kind of figuring it out. And then ultimately having, you know, some success. And I think without those seven years of failure, I never would have had those two years of success. Hey, Jeff, can when I, 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 let me ask you a question before you go in yeah, on there, yeah. because you know, the seven years of failure, when you were in that journey, you know, there's so many people that probably would have um, not, per, you know, pursued that, persevered, pressed on. You know, for you personally, what allowed you to just keep moving forward really from failure to failure? Well, you know, I didn't even think it. I wasn't thinking of like 
for seven years I'm trying to be a writer and I'm, I'm persevering and persevering. You know, a lot of times failure is just life. You know, you try things, you get knocked down and you go, oh, okay. <laughs> try it another way and you get knocked down again. And you go, this hurts. This isn't fun. I don't like rejection. I mean, for seven years, what failure looked like for me was, uh, you know, being a struggling writer. I was working a day job. I was trying to get published. I was trying to, um, you know, get published in magazines. I had a little bit of success initially and then afterwards none. <laughs> and most of my failure was full of waiting where I was thinking about doing it, but wasn't really, you know, uh, being very active. And, um, I, again, I, it didn't feel like perseverance to me. It felt like life and it felt like disappointment. And so by the, by the end of that seven years, I had believed a lie, which is I had no business doing this. I wasn't even thinking of myself as a writer, uh, anymore because the failure had just put so much shame in me. Hmm. And, um, I, I think there's this, uh, uh you know, the, the people, uh, what is it? Apollo 13 or something? Failure is not an option. That's well, right. That's a silly thing to say because that whole mission failed, <laughs> you know, uh, and I get what they're saying. You know, we've got to do everything we can, but I don't think failure um, is, is not an option. I think failure uh, is a necessity. And in fact, failure is an opportunity. And what happens when you fail is, is really there are three potential results. There's three lessons that you can learn from failure, the, the reason for your failure. One is it was the wrong thing. It's not the thing you're supposed to be doing. You try out an early career and, and you just fail at it. Uh, well, maybe it's not the thing you're supposed to be doing and that failure prevents you from succeeding at the wrong thing. Uh, that's one, one question to ask yourself. Was this the wrong thing if I fail? Uh, two, it was the wrong way. You, you, the attempt was wrong. You did it wrong. That was my case with writing. It wasn't that it was the wrong thing. It was that the way that I was trying to do it, trying to uh, get published on other people's channels and magazines and all of, all of that. You know, seven years ago, that whole world was changing. And so when I finally realized I need to have control of this, I need to take advantage of the tools and resources available to me online right now. And I need to start a blog. I need to stop worrying about other people publishing my work. And I just need to publish it because I have that opportunity. And, and so I changed the way that I did it. And then the the last um, you know option, the, the last uh, reason that you're failing is um, it's the wrong time. Uh, it, there there are things that I attempted when I was 22 that that now that I'm 32, uh, I'm succeeding at them at them that at 22 years old, it was the wrong time. I had no business doing it. I didn't have enough oper- I didn't have enough experience. And now it's it's the right time. Sometimes, uh, you know, a certain dream or idea needs to, sh- to sit on the shelf for a while and, and you need to grow. The trick there is to not defer the dream and, you know, and, and sort of cast aside, but to keep working, you know, work on something else, keep growing. Um, but uh, but I think those are, you know, those are the three uh, potential outcome outcomes. It's the wrong thing. It's the wrong way or it's the wrong uh, time. And all of those give you opportunities to pivot, to change the way that you're doing it. Try something different, uh, you know, put that, put that aside and try it another time or try it another way. And again, failure is not an option. It's an opportunity. You know, it's interesting. I, you know, I've always looked as, at failure as, you know, just one possible outcome. Uh, and a good yeah. friend of mine, Jamie Gilbert, he's a, a performance coach. He works with some of the most elite athletes in the world. And uh, what he teaches in, you know, in those moments is walk away, sit down, and write down a list of 10 things of what went well. 
no matter how good or poorly you did. This is actually what I do with my children after they have it, like say a terrible game. As a, one of my sons is a pitcher in baseball, you know what went well and what did you learn from that? And what happens is what you're talking about. You have awareness of those three areas, uh, but what come the, then you have this learning that comes out of it, but it's coming from in inside of you. So it's not being coached or told you. Uh, and then the application of that, it's very powerful because it allows you to change your mindset, your perceptions, and your behaviors if you continually go through that process. And then you can use any failure as just a, a, a springboard to keep moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we don't appreciate failure. It's it, it feels like an enemy, but really it's a friend in disguise. It's that friend who tells you the things that you don't want to hear. It's a form of feedback. Mm-hmm. And I think we all have those friends who are, you know, <laughs> they're a little too prophetic. They're too much of a truth teller. And it goes, okay, okay, okay. Like, I get it. I, I'm terrible at this. Um, thank you for the very, you know, harsh, ungracious, you know, critique. And yet it's true. And you go, all right. I can't deny the truth of that. I've got to, you know, I've got to do something with that. What was interesting for me in writing this book was how many stories of success wouldn't have resulted in the success if it weren't for the failure. Like the story of Groupon, which was uh, a million dollar, uh, you know, a million dollar failure. They lost a million dollars, try, you know, as a philanthropy organization, and then they they pivoted. They said, well, what can we do with all this technology, all this social media technology that we get people to vote on, uh, giving of their time and resources? It was a philanthropic uh, endeavor. It failed. It lost all this money. They couldn't keep it operating. And somebody said, well, what if we just try to sell something? with it. Mm-hmm. And 13, $13 billion later, that failure led to a success that nobody ever could have planned for. And on and on, there are these examples that I've you know run across in Have you ever heard of the company Odeo? No. Uh-uh. So Odeo was originally supposed to be a podcast broadcasting platform that completely failed. And they yeah. made a pivot. And you know what the company became out of that failure? Twitter. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 amazing. Uh, I don't think failure is a thing that prevents you from success. It leads you there if you can learn from it, if you can pivot, and if you can keep persevering. Uh, Jeff, with all this said, if people have been listening to this conversation, they're driving their car, they're working out, uh, and they're just really excited about connecting to this calling, you know, getting this direction in their life, moving forward, maybe in the absence of just perfect clarity, which I think is something that holds a lot of people back. So what what are some of the final thoughts or next steps you'd leave with somebody as they've been listening to what you've been sharing? One of the things that I struggle with is um, how I, I love reading biographies. I love stories. And yet I, I read these stories of incredible people doing incredible things and it often makes me feel more alone and lonely in the work that I do because I, I often just feel like uh, an ordinary guy. Um, our son uh, loves dressing up in superhero costumes. And I'll ask him, who are you today? And often it's you know Superman or Thor or the Hulk or whatever. But sometimes uh, my son Aiden will say, I'm just a guy. You know, <laughs> just say like, mm-hmm. I'm, just, I'm just a regular guy today. And I feel like, uh, you know, most of the time I just feel like I'm just a guy. I'm, I'm nobody special. And I don't mean that in any sort of like falsely humble way. Most of the time I feel like I'm, I'm missing out on, on the good stuff of life and, and, and just because I'm not special uh, enough. And I wrote this book to 
sort of point out the fact that as I started digging into these stories, I realized these people who who did these extraordinary things, um, you know, they they didn't have any sort of extraordinary circumstances. They were just a guy or just a girl. They were they were just doing what they knew to do the best that they could do it, and the result of it was you know some incredible story. The thing that I saw again and again, and you pointed this out, John, is um, there was no special clarity or light from heaven. Uh, often it was taking the messiness of life and then deciding to do something about it, not just sort of sitting back and passively going, well, you know, God, what do you want me to do? The thing that I would say, if there's one thing that I could say, there's, you know, just like, uh, you know, we could keep talking. There's a lot of things that I would, you know, uh, want to keep saying. But I, I would say it really begins with this. Don't be afraid of not knowing. I think uh, that is a great so many point, people Jeff. I talk to when, when we talk about the the life that they're living versus the, the life that they you know want to live. There's there's all this lack of of clarity of I, I don't know what to do. And, and I would say don't be afraid of that. Lean into that. Try things. Fail. You're not going to get stuck doing the wrong thing. The wrong thing is to do no thing at all. And um, again, remember what makes a life extraordinary aren't the chances we get, but what we do with them. We're all given these lives that feel a little too ordinary for our own liking. And I think most of us feel like we're missing out on the good stuff of life. But what if hidden in our ordinary lives, there was the stuff that could make for an extraordinary story? If we were willing to lean into it, to act in spite of not knowing and feeling afraid and, and do something brave anyway. What recommendations would you have for people, you know, if they're going through this process to, you know, be in community, find other like-minded people that are, you know, on this same journey that are really, you know, whether you've talked about, right, I want to make an impact on just one life at a time, or I have this vision to impact and move large numbers of people, but any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely community. I think every story of success is really a story of community. You look at people who have accomplished amazing things, and what you find out is it was never the lone genius who did it on their own. It was always a network, a community, a partnership. You know, some group of people that was more that was made up of more than one person. And um, you you cannot succeed on your own. I think one of the best things that you can do right now, just to get started, is to not think of uh, this this process of finding your calling, discovering what you're meant to do as a solitary activity. It's a communal activity. I, I would not be here doing what I'm doing, and uh, you know, neither would you know Walt Disney have accomplished what he did, or Mother Teresa, or uh, Jody Nolan, or any of these people that I, I, I talk about. Were it not for being plugged into a supportive and even sometimes critical community, who's going to help you figure out what you uh, ought to be doing and keep doing that, affirm the things that you're insecure about, and at the same time, what you ought not to do. Um, my wife and, and a small group of friends that I meet with every week are my greatest confidants, and they will call me out. They will say, why are you doing that? That's not your gifting. That's a waste of your time. Who cares if you can make a ton of money doing that or it's going to make you famous? That's not what you're supposed to do. And and it realigns my activity with my identity, which I think is so important, and, it, and, it, and that does not happen outside of community. Wow, realignment of your identity. You know, that is such powerful feedback. You know, the other thing I was thinking as you were talking is, um, what if you went and found somebody else who's like-minded, who's you know wants to find their calling, and you help them find it, and you ask them if they would help you, and then you just start building. The two of you become four. You become that small group, and you're all supporting each other. Because I, I think you're right. If we're trying to go through this alone, it's just terribly frustrating. 
Yeah, that's 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 great advice. Um, you know, I, I think that's um, uh, when it comes to creating those communities, creating those networks. Um, I, I've spent a little bit of uncomfortable time in the business world where you know you go to these events, people hand out their business cards, and in my experience, that's never been a really great way to build. Um, a network and, and, and great long-term relationships. Uh, occasionally, I will meet somebody that I, you know, become friends with or do business with, uh, or you know, just stay in long-term relationship with for years. But it's always through, you know, some informal. We went out for pizza together. We found out, you know, we both had kids the same age, or you know, some sort of informal connection. And it never it immediately leads to, hey, do this for me, or I'll do, you know, like well, let's exchange favors. Um, you know, it's always this sort of organic process. I think the, the whole idea of networking, we misunderstand that it's not so much uh, you know what you know or even who you know, it's really who you help. And uh, you know that's what every friendship is, is founded upon is this mutual exchange of um, uh, help and ideas and information and it just you know uh, getting to know each other for the sake of the relationship. Same thing's true with building this community. You know, don't go, go around being a taker. Um, go around being a giver, and and I think you'll find that you know what my dad told me when I was growing up tends to be true. Not always, but often. What goes around comes around. If you'd like to learn more about Jeff, his blog, or his books, just go to eternalleadership.com slash 078. That's eternalleadership.com slash 078. Are you on our Eternal Leadership email newsletter list? It's a simple and efficient way to hear about upcoming and recent interviews, as well as thoughts from John and myself, like one that we just sent out about the trip that I'm on right now for the Heaven in Business Conference. I, t- I talk about how nine months ago, my wife was hospitalized with an enlarged heart and congestive heart failure, really right at the time that this podcast launched. The doctors, her nutritionist, and most importantly, God have brought her back to the point that she's with me right now in Northern California. So go to eternalleadership.com and there on the front page, if you scroll down just a little, you'll see a form to sign up. Like I said, right there on the front page, eternalleadership.com. Next time on Eternal Leadership, Executive Director of Humanitarian International Services Group, Mike McCausland. I never realized how hard it was to help somebody and actually not hurt them. There's a lot of good books out there now, like When Helping Hurts or Dead Aid or Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid or many others that, that even help us now understand that a lot of what we do to try to help people actually hurts them, creates dependency, uh, kills innovation and creativity and productivity. And a lot of people are out there doing things that they really believe because they have a good intention to help are helping people, but the reality is it's actually doing more harm than good. Mike shares about how his start in the nuclear power business set him up for what he's been doing for the last 30 years. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership.